You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last nine years, we've been meeting here every single week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, over the last two weeks, we've had three disqualification or no contest finishes in the UFC, not just in any fights, but in high-profile fights, man. As everyone remembers, back on March 6th at UFC 259, of course, Peter Yawn's men's bantamweight title defense against Aljamain Sterling ended in a uh, disqualification. And now this week, over there at uh, UFC Fight Night, what is it, 187, a.k.a. UFC Vegas 21. A.k.a. UFC on ESPN Plus 45. We got names, that's for sure. <laughs> We got names. You had not only the main event, the welterweight contender fight of Leon Edwards versus Bilal Muhammad end in a no contest due to an accidental eye poke. We will talk about that at length on this episode of the podcast. But you also had the main card curtain jerker and Eric Anders versus Darren Stewart end in a no contest after Eric Anders, who appeared on the verge of winning that fight, landed an illegal knee down the stretch in the first round. Uh, and so that was a no contest. Ben, what's what's really even going on here with all these, I might even call them woolly, with all these woolly finishes over the last couple of weeks in the UFC? Is this where we have to consider the possibility that this is all your fault? I mean, it's always, it's always a consideration. Yeah. But, uh, You're the one, Chad, who loathed those many years ago laid out on cagepotato.com the reasons why you should always cheat in an MMA fight. And you know what? Your reasoning was sound. Mm -hmm. Your argument was tight. It's a very tight rhetoric you use there. Thank you. Thank you. And now look where we are. People be cheating their asses off. <laughs> and it's not going so great. Uh, well, number one, thank you for bringing up Dundasa, which has mm -hmm. become a flourishing martial art and financial goldmine yeah. for the co-main event podcast. Kind of a way of life, really. I, I would argue over the last couple of weeks, what we have seen, though, is is people not using Dundasso all that skillfully, not, yeah. not very skillful practitioners here, because uh, the point is that you're supposed to get ahead, especially in the case of Eric Anders, man. Uh, Darren Stewart was about out. That, mm -hmm. that was when when you... When you hurt him with the illegal knee and then the doctor comes in there, it's probably difficult to even figure out, is the damage I'm seeing in front of me all over the the strained visage of Darren Stewart, is it because of the illegal knee or is it because of the of the punches that Eric Anders was landing and the legal knees that he was landing? So at that point, man, uh, that's not what I would consider to be an, an advantageous or able usage of Dundasso because you you were about to win anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of shades of John Jones, Matt Hamill, right? Where you're hitting the guy with every legal strike in the book and you just kind of, it seems like you run out of ideas 
and you throw the 12 to 6 elbow, and then that gets you disqualified, even though the damage that was done was done by a bunch of legal strikes. Where it gets tricky for me is when we see referees going to make this determination between intentional and unintentional in cases yeah. like that. I mean, I get it in the Peter Yan sense because in that fight, Mark Smith had an apple, apple opportunity to tell Peter Yan. He said, he's down. And then he threw the knee anyway. And so it's like, yeah, okay, he, what else can you do but tell the guy, this is the strike you cannot throw. And then he throws it. You got to call that intentional, I guess. But Herb Dean calls this one, the Eric Anders one, unintentional. And I don't know, looked to me like he was trying to knee him in the head. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, I, I guess you're saying at that point what I don't think he realized that the guy was down. But isn't that part of his job as a fighter is to know when he can throw what strikes? I mean, it, it, if this all ends up with us throwing up our hands and saying, screw it, we're getting rid of the down fighter rule, I would love it. Unfortunately, I don't see us going that way. I don't think... Any state athletic commissions are seriously thinking about like just taking away rules, adding more violence to this thing. I just don't, I can't picture them doing that. But in the meantime, it seems like you, you still, one of the, the core tenets of the, that Dundasso case you made was that you can't necessarily tell what's going to happen after a foul is committed in MMA right. beforehand. Right. And that uh, when you commit the foul, you automatically put the, the other guy on the defensive. The guy who's been fouled is usually the one who catches the most flack in mixed martial arts circles. And we saw that with Aljamain Sterling a week ago. I, you know that I think that the job of refereeing an MMA fight is already hard enough. And I yeah. agree with you a hundred percent that it's really weird that we have to put this additional, uh, stressor on the, on the official that, that like he or she is supposed to figure out whether or not a foul was quote unquote intentional or not. On the other hand, like you don't you have to make some some distinction between what Peter Yan did and and what either Eric Anders or, or Leon Edwards did this past weekend? Like maybe the line in the sand between intentional and unintentional is did you take a look around? <laughs> did you ask your coach? And then did you go ahead and throw the knee? I don't know exactly what what the case is, but like the Peter Yan foul of these three clearly was the most egregious and like i i mean would we have been better off if we had declared either darren stewart or Bilal muhammad the winner of those fights on saturday like i don't necessarily think that we would have yeah that's true i mean the the leon edwards one though I'm, we'll end up talking a whole lot about it but i saw again the renewed glove discourse on right. mma twitter that and is that is the question the big question is is there anything that we can do to prevent these these fouls, or in the great words of the American poet Kane Brown, who we quoted a couple weeks ago on the Power Hour, sometimes it be like that. Is that well, is that just where we're at? I don't know if you can ever one hundred percent rid ourselves of the possibility of eye pokes in MMA, just by the nature of the sport. But when you think about how Joe Rogan used to go on that glove rant every single time somebody was poked in the eye and you're like, oh, we got to get some kind of different gloves in there. And the different gloves exist. They have existed. People were pointing out on Twitter, they were putting the side-by-side -side comparison of the pride glove, the more naturally curved uh, exit for the fingers at the top, and then the UFC glove, which lets you just put your fingers straight out. We've seen other glove examples, uh, like regional promotions have worked with uh, glove manufacturers to try to come up with better gloves. Trevor Whitman came up with his own glove. 
the, the technology exists. We can do something to at least improve the situation, at least cut down on some of these unintentional eye pokes where just by not allowing your fingers to go out quite so easily like that. We can do it. We're just not doing it. Yeah. And that, that to me is the most frustrating part. Yeah. And as you said, we're going to talk more about Edwards Muhammad coming up, but like, it's also frustrating in the first round to see Edwards reaching those fingers out. And at one point Herb Dean steps in and tries to warn him about it. But the way that he warns him, at least to my eye from, from viewing outside the cage is very strange. He basically says, it's okay to put your hand out with your fingers wide open. Just don't put your hand out with your fingers wide open and then skewer the other guy in the eyes with them is basically what he said. And, and I don't know, man, it seems like as long as we're going to continue to allow people to, to find range or to test a distance with their fingers up like that, sometimes it'd be like that, mm-hmm. man, people are going to get poked in the eye. Yeah. Yeah. Reminder, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines or podcast libraries, but make no mistake, Ben folks and I are here all week. Don't forget to tip your bartender, by the way, over at the co-main event podcast Patreon page. We're over there dropping not one, not two, but typically three additional podcasts every single week just for the beloved patrons of the CME. That includes the Wednesday live chat where all topics are welcome and absolutely anything can happen. Plus the Friday Power Hour podcast where we typically take a deep dive into the most compelling MMA topic of the week as well as unleashed the most powerful force in all of fight sports. The co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour, Power Rankings. It rolls off the tongue. It is both exhilarating and a little bit scary to behold. And last week, Ben, for all we know, the power of the co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour, Power Rankings, might have just fried my laptop. Because because things got out of control on Friday. There didn't end up being a power hour because of some technical difficulties. And, And I don't know. Many people are saying, many people are saying, that it's the power rankings running wild that's causing these problems. People are talking about that. I've heard that talk. However, I, I also heard that you got that new MacBook good good coming into your life pretty soon here. It's en route. You know, we gotta uh, we gotta hope the pandemic hasn't disrupted the supply chain uh, too much. We gotta get that new gotta get that new computer in here so that the discourse can remain unfettered, my friend. That's right. We cannot have the discourse fettered. So if that sounds like something you might be interested in, head on over to patreon.com slash co-main event where we got three handy tiers of patronage available to you. This week, we got music from our guy, Stockholm-based producer, Simeo, aka co-main event podcast listener, Alfred Larson. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash Simeo. That's S-E-E. M-I-O in Simeo. Three rounds as usual this week in the Coleman Event Podcast in round number one. At this point, we can only reasonably conclude that at some point in time, Leon Edwards crossed a witch or a warlock type figure and was cursed. And in round number two, also though, we must concede that at least some of that curse is of Edwards' own making. And in round number three, but hey, we also got uh, Brunson versus Holland this weekend. So all sorry, that plus, you, are you, you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? You, you trailed off there. I don't. Like did we you, did always you... do about this time. 
Did you? It seems like you got you were the victim of your own disinterest. Sometimes it'd be like that. Let's new ringtone? Listener mail. You got a you got a new ringtone? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> do people still have songs as their ringtones? Is that a thing I that happens? So. I, who maybe out here, you can who bring among it back. us who among us doesn't have their shit on vibrate? That's what I want to know. Uh my mom. <laughs> that's what you see. There you go. Moms. That's who does that's who doesn't have their shit on vibrate. If you if you have a ringtone, mm-hmm. You better work in in a a high pressure environment, <laughs> a, a high volume, high pressure environment where you're not going to notice your phone vibrating. Otherwise, I'm inclined to think you're kind of an a hole, man. I don't know, or a mom. I would never say anything to dismir- besmirch your mother. You know that as well I, as I do. Uh, my own field studies have suggested that if you do have a ringtone on your phone and you're, and you're not on vibrate, there is a 100% chance that you also have the keyboard typing noises turned on <laughs> on your phone. 100%. Also, wonder, is, is that still standard that when you get the iPhone, it has the typing noises turned on? Cause I remember for a while you used to have to go into settings and be like, no, I won't, don't want to sound like Ernest Hemingway over here <laughs> slamming out the old man in the sea when I'm trying to text somebody. So I'm going to turn that off. But you would think that the, the wizards over at Apple would at some point realize that that's not what we want. And they would have made that, that standard. I, but I don't know the answer to that question. But then, you know, you have to ask yourself, do you still want to be out here having it make the whoop noise when you're playing words with friends? Yeah. And the answer is yes, you do. Apparently. See, so you got to go in and you got to customize that shit. That's where you're at. Mm -hmm. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Rick Dalton. Okay. Is that a character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? That That is uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, remember? Never, yeah. Don't you forget, you're Rick fucking Dalton. Yeah, there you go. He writes, my question is, do you think if COVID gets submitted in the late rounds soon? Okay, right, let's not. I'm just, can I, I'm going to knock on wood there just to, uh, to keep the jinx from taking effect. Mm-hmm. And the world opens back up to business as usual. Do you think the UFC will still run fights at the apex? I was thinking they may have found they can take that sweet ESPN plus money and throw on random cards like Edwards versus Bilal once a week and not have to try and sell it to fans in Cedar Rapids uh, and not have production costs, travel, uh, et cetera, for these ho-hum cards and could maybe sell some tickets to fans at the apex. Please discourse. See, Ben, this gets to the heart of what you and I have talked about a lot around the topic of pandemic MMA. And that question is, what is the UFC going to learn from the last year and change of, of the pandemic where there clearly have been some things that were disadvantageous to the UFC, some things that probably they, they don't want to see carry on, but also maybe they learned some stuff that will be instructive, even as the world gets back to quote unquote normal life at some point, we hope. Uh, What do you think is, is, is the fact that maybe we can just stay home at the apex and keep some of our overhead low and maybe continue to cash in uh, on these, these weekly licensing payments from ESPN plus is that, do you think that that's a thing that crosses the UFC's mind? Because a week or two ago, we heard Dana White talking about Texas 
and he's sounding like a kid in a damn candy store. He cannot wait to get back out and have a super spreader event down there in the Lone Star State. Seems like Dana White is is hyped to get back on the road, to get the, yeah. the fans coming in. Obviously, they make a lot of money on live gates, not a ton of, of seating there at the Apex. But what do you think? Are, are, are there lessons to be learned here to the UFC during this, this pandemic and the way everything has played out? Yeah, I mean, I think like with anything, I think a lot of us, we are not even sure yet what lessons we are going to learn from this pandemic and, and what ways that it... It forced us to change our lives and our work and things like that in ways where we are going to, once we can go back to the old way, realize we don't want to or we don't have to. And, I mean, the whole idea behind building the Apex in the first place, remember, was to have your own arena where you can do your own events and and do your production right there. And also, you know, have lincoln park or whoever it is dana white thinks is a cool musical act still to come in there and do concerts and stuff like that every once in a while like that was the dream that was the vision that it seemed like the ufc put forth when it announced that it had developed this future of fighting and so i think that maybe there's still gonna maybe an even an increased reliance on that uh, once the ufc sees how it can do this stuff but it also seems like when you hear dana white talking like it's kind of driving him crazy just being home all this time like it, yeah. it seemed like it drove him crazy really early on. And even now when like you can get events going and it would seem like you could do it really easily, just rolling stuff out once a week from the apex. But it also seems like it's kind of killing him. Like he just can't wait to get back out there, go to different cities and have live gates and, and live crowds. And I do think that's an important part for the UFC of just, uh, for its, not only for its business, but for sort of spreading the gospel of the UFC. I think it, it helps a lot to get out there and go to some of these cities and go to places. Especially, you know, you've seen it. Whenever the UFC goes a place where they either haven't been before or they haven't been in a long time, they can kind of get a sellout just because it's the UFC coming to town. Before they even have a card to announce, they can they can usually sell get pretty close to a sellout. And I think that they're eager to go back and do that again. But I also do think that they're... There are going to be some ways that we come out of this and lessons we did not expect to learn, you know, th- things that will have changed our lives. And, and maybe a re- like an increased reliance on the apex could very well be one of them. Yeah. The old road dog, Dana White, having trouble changing his stripes. You can tell he's he's ready to get back out there in the in the on the open road, feeling the the wind rustling over the pate. The bald pate. Uh, but at the same time, I think you're right. I think that they did learn. Maybe what they learned was come hell or high water, we can keep this thing going. Like mm-hmm. we got the apex to fall back on under almost any societal condition. We can just continue to run fights every single week as long as we got that nuclear bunker in the basement mm-hmm. filled with Zients and uh, P3 protein packs and like a crate of Chinese SKS assault rifles. We'll be fine. We'll just hole up here at the apex and, and it'll be cockroaches uh, and the UFC will be the only things that carry on after the... Uh, after the apocalypse future Next question this week comes to us from Alex Pacey who writes, how about instead of taking, uh, how about instead of talking about new gloves or better point deduction system, we all just agree to train fighters to always have a closed fist when range finding with all these skills, these guys are able to muster. Surely they can handle that. Uh, we talked about this obviously at the top of the show, but yeah, it seems like at least to my mind, the way I'm seeing it, uh, if guys are just keeping their fists closed most of the time, you would probably have fewer eye, eye pokes. And I don't know, do you think do you think that's that it's kind of like a devil may care attitude about that among fighters where they're like, "Hey man, 
if they're going to, if this is what the ref is going to tell me to do, I'm going to stick my fingers out there. And if, and if some MFers eyeball happens to skewer itself on the end of my finger, uh, so be it. Yeah. I don't think it's a thing that they are going in the gym and going, I need to train my body in this way because I cannot allow myself to accidentally poke somebody in the eye. I don't think that they're worried about it in that sense. Yeah. But I also think that it's an oversimplification to just tell people, keep your fist closed at all time. Because, you know, it's this isn't boxing. It's your for one thing, you, you might want to have your fist or your your hand open when you're you're parrying shots and things like that. You're looking to reach in and grab somebody. Uh and just like you know, you get in there close uh, and you don't want to be fighting at that range and you want to push off and, and, and circle off on somebody. It's just going to happen kind of naturally. I don't, I don't think the answer can be just drilling it into fighters that you must never open your hand at any time when you're fighting. Cause that's just, that's not going to work. I think the, the better solution is to get a, a glove in there that just makes it a lot harder to extend those fingers straight out like that. Because, I mean, this one, hey, maybe it wouldn't have made a difference because the way Leon Edwards kind of poked him in the eye was almost like a downward drag on the bottom of Bilal Muhammad's eyelid. And seeing that close-up image of it, it's sort of instructive, but also uh, gross. Yeah, very gross. (laughs) To see how that happens. Well, maybe some of that is just going to happen no matter what kind of glove you have. But I do think it's it's worth trying at this point, isn't it? Like, yeah. So we're we, trying almost anything. Right. Because right now, basically, it's like, you know, we've done nothing and we're all out of ideas. Yeah. I just want to take this opportunity to remind everyone that the intellectual property rights are still available for my proposed MMA organization, Marshmallow FC. Okay. Where the fighters all fight with marshmallows stuck on the end of their fingers. Mm-hmm. So that the worst thing that happens if you get a collision, an unexpected collision, perhaps a tasty treat yeah. for one of the fighters involved. You know who I think Marshmallow FC is going to be really popular with is heavyweights. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're thinking about doing away with the 265 pound <laughs> limit just to uh, just to let everybody train as hard as they want. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Shane Carruth, who writes, "Okay, uh, Daniel, second time fulfilling your nickname, Ige, you have my attention, sir. Please discourse. Discourse. Okay. Uh, uh, this one, the, the fulfilling your nickname thing, I, I got to say, you know, you go out there with uh, like a basically a dollar figure mm-hmm. in your nickname. <laughs> You're setting some expectations for yourself. But, uh, you know, he seems like actually might be up for it. This one, though, man, it was as if like he just all he had to do was wait for Gavin Tucker to run face first into his fist. Yeah. Kind of, kind of an awesome knockout there. Yeah. He put Gavin Tucker to bed early in this one, 22 seconds into the first round. Second performance-based bonus of his UFC career for Dan 50K Ige. Kind of a bold move, or maybe risky move, to have your nickname predicated around a dollar figure controlled by someone else. Like, what if the UFC merely changes the amount that it gives out for its <laughs> post-fight performance-based yeah. bonuses? Like, at that point, do you have to change your name to Dan 75K Ige? Uh but so it seems to be working for him, at least in the short term. He came into this fight coming off the loss to Calvin Cater, but I believe this is seven and one in the last eight fights for Dan Ige, uh, who was also an MMA manager, correct? Or yeah. this was he works with an MMA management company, yeah. Yeah, so he's uh you know, that's that's not a that's not a record you can sneeze at in the featherweight division. Of course, you're gonna 
you know, that loss to Calvin Cater is, is going to set you back a little bit. But like, I don't know, man, it does seem like Dan Ige, who's a, an exciting guy, like a com- compelling guy, a, a good guy on the mic. You know, he, now he gets this 22 second knockout of Gavin Tucker. Like he's an emerging guy who could potentially be a, a player at that 145 pound class. Yeah. And, you know, coming off a, a loss to Calvin Cater isn't anything to be ashamed of. Like Calvin Cater's a good damn fighter, you know, so yeah. that's it's not like a, that's a terrible loss or anything. I do wonder though, what happens if you, like, if you have to go to bankruptcy court or like you're dealing with the IRS and you're like, you know, Hey, the, these are my reported earnings. And they're like, okay, see, we looked you up on Wikipedia. <laughs> the nickname is not Dan 27,894 K mm-hmm. E gay. Yeah. Although, it's telling that when you raise the concern that what if the UFC decides to increase the performance bonuses and I'm going, you know what? I don't feel like that's a big threat right now. Yeah, probably more more apt you'd be changing your name to Dan 30K, Ige. Uh I think having a nickname that is a, a dollar value is perhaps second as a tip off to the IRS only to having a $4 million fuck watch. Right? <laughs> I mean, the IRS is going to notice that. They're going to be like, yeah. well. We, we've got your filing in front of us, mm-hmm. uh, but we couldn't help but notice in the Seems paperwork so. here, what is what is not covered is the video we saw of you showing off your $4 million fuck watch. It seems like, and correct us if, our, if we're wrong here, there's a, a button or something you can press on your watch yeah. that then conjures up an image of fornication. Yep. You got some porns on there. If you're mm-hmm. going to spend $4 million on a watch, you better make sure it has some porns in there. Next question this week comes to us from Ross from Ohio. He writes, does Habib have to take these meetings with Dana? If he's done, why even travel to have a meeting unless you are actually waiting for an offer you like? So we talked about this a little bit recently, perhaps even on Friday during the great lost episode of the Coming Event Podcast Patreon Power Hour. But at this point, I have gone ahead and, and proffered the idea that all of the cards are held by Habib because the UFC has... Uh, been pretty forthright about the fact that it can't fucking wait to get Habib back in the cage if the quote-unquote the right guy comes out of the 155-pound title picture as the number one contender. Whether or not that quote-unquote right guy does or does not own a fuck watch is up to anyone's debate. But uh, if you're Habib, why not take the meetings, man? It feels like you've got all the negotiating power. Why not get Dana White to shell out for a fucking free meal out there at various Las Vegas steakhouses? You're probably not worried about making weight anytime soon. Take, keep taking the meetings, man. Keep eating the dinners and keep keep waiting for the offers to get better uh, until you get one that makes you feel like maybe going back on your word to your mom is worth it. Yeah, and at least for a lot of these, it's not like he's really disrupting his life. To go yeah. have dinner with Dana White. I mean, he it wasn't the last one right when he was out there to corner uh, Islam Makachev, right? right? Like it wasn't and like also he... splitting shifts as an intrepid investigative reporter. That's right. There, <laughs> yes. Giving us the scoop about Peter Yan in his corner. Yeah. So he was already in town. Dana White says, "Let's go to dinner, and I'll, I'll take you somewhere nice. We can talk about the future of the lightweight title." And you're like, "All right, can we get appetizers?" <laughs> you yep. know, like, can we can we swing by for some froyo afterwards? Why yeah. not? You know, and and you're right. Like, I, I would love to know exactly the depth of detail that goes into some of these dinnertime conversations between Dana White and Khabib, because it seems like he's just going to keep saying the same thing he's always saying. You know, hey, he hasn't doesn't seem like he has waffled a whole lot. 
at least yeah. in what he is saying publicly. And he keeps telling reporters, I don't, I think you guys make too big a deal of that when I, you know, I go and I have dinner and I talk to Dana White. So what? And it's like, well, Dana White keeps making a big deal of it. He keeps acting like whatever is being said at these dinners is the reason why you're still the lightweight champion. And I, I don't know. It, it does seem like if you are Habib at this point, why would you feel like you need to make a decision? Why would you feel like you need to do anything differently? Like, you know, I can go eat some chicken parm, listen to Dana White talk about what his, his dream scenario for the lightweight division, and then just keep doing what I'm doing anyway. Why not? Yeah, if you're Habib Nurmagomedov, why not extend this particular period on for the rest of your life? If they're just going to let you have the title, keep taking you out for dinner, keep making big and bigger and bigger offers, and they're going to continue to keep your name in the headlines, like just extend it as long as you can, man. What's the, what's the, what does it cost you that in between the salad course and the main course, you got to look up from your phone so that uh, Dana can make his pitch about whether if Conor McGregor beats Dustin Poirier in the rematch, it's, do you think it seem like too big a price to pay? Do we get to a point here pretty soon where Habib hears about a new restaurant opening? He's like, Oh, Asian fusion, man. I don't know. I'm getting that itch. I'm getting yeah. that itch, Dana. Let's talk he about hears- it. He hears about a new sushi place he wants to try out over there in Vegas. And the next thing you know, there's uh, there's videos of him doing the, that thing with the attack ropes in the gym, right? <laughs> Swinging yeah. those ropes, being like, I'm, I don't know, man. Starting to starting to get that feeling again. Dana, feel let's hook up. Feel like I could still go. I don't know. Anyway, uh, can we get the egg rolls? What do you say? What do we say? We split a, we split an order egg rolls. Last question this week comes to us from Davin De, Gavin DeGraw, who writes, So, Jin Yu Fry probably saved her job with a win on Saturday. She was nine and four before entering the UFC and became the Invicta 105 pound champion, but is just one and two in the UFC and looks seriously outsized at 115 pounds. My question, why wouldn't the UFC capitalize on adding a 105 pound division? Uh, Invicta has 22 athletes listed on their atom weight roster. One has enough for an eight woman tournament and Rye a oh, one, I'm sorry, one has enough for an eight woman tournament. I got to be careful where I put the emphasis there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Ryzen has six more in their promotion. If the UFC could poach even 10 of those 36 athletes, we'd have ourselves an exciting new division and a new belt that the UFC could promote. Uh, this is, I'm not going to say this is a bad idea. I think that uh, Gavin DeGraw makes a lot of sense when he speaks his mind here about the atom weight division. However, it doesn't seem like we are in an expansive kind of mood, especially yeah. when it comes to uh, the women's divisions in the UFC. In fact, it appears that we are in more of a contracting, contraction kind of a, a space, head space right now with the UFC. And you can, as we said, like the last year probably hasn't been super easy for them. They've had a lot of stuff going on. You can understand if there's more belt tightening going on than uh, ideas for expansion. But like, I don't know, if you came out and said, we're going to do Adam Weight, we're going to do 105 pound women's division. I wouldn't hate it. Well, first of all, I want to be there when you suggest to UFC matchmakers, let's add another division right now. I, I want to, I want to be there so I can watch their, their eyeballs twitch with rage and the, the, just the, every, like the color drain right out of their faces. Is that, that probably at this point with all the stress they have trying to keep some of these cards together and keep everything moving, that might not be a welcome announcement for them to have to, a whole new weight class to manage. Also, when you start mentioning all these other organizations that have this weight class and like, oh, Invicta has a bunch you could go poach. Man, leave Invicta alone. <laughs> Let them have something. Jesus yeah. Christ. We're like, okay, oh, you, you still have some territory that we have not yet just come, like, 
completely snatched away from you. You have some fighters that you've built up that haven't just been then to the UFC's benefit and not yours. Oh, let's go. Let's go take those people to leave them alone. Yeah. Let them do some things. That is going to do it for listener mail. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. at length obviously in the weeks leading up to this fight about what a hard road it has been for leon edwards of late he wasn't even supposed to fight Bilal muhammad on saturday night he was supposed to fight kamzat shemaev he's had numerous fights canceled numerous high profile bookings kind of yanked out from under him by the covid19 pandemic and other things this was his first fight since his victory over Rafael dos anjos uh, in july of 2019 and at least in the early going, it seemed like things were going pretty well for Leon Edwards against against Bilal Muhammad. And then, of course, you get the eye poke early in the second round, and, and things are pretty academic from that point. Not long to wait here before the doctor calls this thing off. And uh, we resulted with a no contest in this in this main event fight. We think we're probably going to have to come over, come back over, I should say, and do this damn thing again. That's got to be, uh, you know, a rough psychological road on top of everything else for Leon Edwards, man. I don't know where you want to start with this one. Maybe let's start here. Like Leon Edwards goes out there in the first round and doesn't look, uh, doesn't look like he has any, any rust on him. In fact, he looks at times like perhaps he had taken to heart the criticisms of that. He was a kind of decision producer here that he hadn't had a lot of stoppages in the UFC. And maybe that was one of the, the, the things keeping him away from number one contender status. He looks pretty aggressive he looks uh, pretty sharp in the striking and like he hadn't really missed a beat despite all this time off. Like I thought up until the eye poke, Leon Edwards was kind of reminding us who he was here. Yeah, no, he did look good in that first round. You know, that that head kick he landed uh, early on, that that finishes some people, you know, or at yeah. least puts them in much bigger danger. Muhammad did a good job of it. He took it. You could tell it hurt him. And he did a good job kind of poker-facing his way through the next few minutes until he could kind of collect himself there. But you're right. Leon Edwards looked good. Did not look rusty at all. And yet, I can't, I can't quite go along with this suggestion that, hey, I, I won that first round. I, I was his, his claim that the writing was on the wall. That basically... We don't need to worry about a rematch. We don't need to worry about the fight ending in a, you know, and no contest after the eye poke because basically look how, how good I was doing. Yeah. That doesn't work for me. Right. And honestly, like this seems to me like I, I wrote about a little bit in my column about how Leon Edwards finally had some goodwill from fans coming into this one just because we, we recognize that he got dealt some bad hands, man. He had, he had had some bad, bad luck. And so, even the people who didn't necessarily like him or weren't really big fans of his, they still were acknowledging, like, this guy's been through it. And uh, I'd like to see maybe something good happen for him, that he deserves something better to happen for him. And then when you go in here, and it seems like this is, like, one of the worst things, outside of just losing, 
This is one of the worst ways it could go. It's not only that, you know, you commit a foul that ends the fight, but then afterwards he shows up to the press conference and is like, eh, but didn't I kind of sort of win? Don't, don't I deserve to fight for a title? And everybody else is going, no, no, that's not how it works, man. Yeah. Yeah. And so it wasn't so much this fight or how it went for Leon Edwards. It was the stuff he said afterwards that has kind of squandered the goodwill, which is, is a, a real shame because like I said, he did seem like he looked as dangerous as ever leading up to the stoppage and i do like clearly that's not a suggestion that is gonna fly and that's not a suggestion that is going to win any hearts and minds in the ufc bubble the mma bubble especially when you're fighting a guy who has done so much to make himself a quasi fan favorite as Bilal muhammad has done over the last few months just with his online presence basically and then stepping up on short notice to take this fight is another uh is another, you know, ingratiating move by Bilal Muhammad, like another thing that makes him look good in front of the, in front of the people and the public. And you could tell how crushed Bilal Muhammad was to have this thing called off by the eye poke. Like he is, he's even before the fight gets called off and he is down on the mat holding his eye. He is like basically crying. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he's crying because like he thinks his eye is damaged. I don't think he's crying because it hurts. He's crying because God damn it. Like he worked hard for this. He tried to step up in this in this position and take advantage of this opening left by Kamzat Shemaev, his first UFC main event, and this is how it ends. Like that's a huge emotional dump. It's a huge psychological blow. So everyone's heart at this point goes out to Bilal Muhammad. So it's just kind of a tone deaf move for Leon Edwards to come to the post fight press conference and be like, Yeah, but don't you think I earned a title shot with that performance? On the other hand, I get it, man. I understand how frustrated Leon Edwards must have been during all of this time off. I understand how frustrated he must have been to lose all of these high-profile opportunities. I understand how frustrated he must have been to not get to fight Kamzat Chemaev, who, if you're Leon Edwards, you probably think you're going to win that fight, and then you've destroyed the UFC's new golden boy. You've destroyed the guy that the UFC clearly wants to prop up as a number one contender, and they would have no choice but to ensconce you there, maybe give you a rematch with Kamara Usman. And it must be frustrating to get Bilal Muhammad, a guy who is another classic Leon Edwards opponent in that he's trying to make his name off you. Yeah. And you're not going to get much in terms of, you know, the spoils of war. If you're Leon Edwards for beating Bilal Muhammad, we're all going to look at it and be like, yeah, Bilal Muhammad's a tough guy. He stepped up on short notice, but you were supposed to beat him. So I understand, man. I understand if you're Leon Edwards, why you would not want to spend another, you know, three to six months or however long it will be fucking around getting ready to fight Bilal Muhammad again. You probably think that you deserve a bigger opponent, but you can't say it like that, man. No, you can't say it in that venue. You got to wait and bide your time. Yeah. And especially right afterwards when at that point, we still don't know, is his eye even okay? Right. You know, like the, the two things you got to do there is one, apologize to the opponent and express concern for his health, which, you know, he did to, to, to Leon Edwards. He didn't, didn't do it particularly enthusiastically, but he did say like, you know, he was sorry and, and he hoped that he was okay. But then to afterwards treat the guy like, you know what? He was just an opponent of convenience anyway. And I wasn't even supposed to be, he just took it. I took him because nobody else would take the fight. And, you know, we all saw I was going to win, so we don't even need to dwell on this anymore. And it's like, man, I I don't blame Bilal Muhammad for being pissed off about that. 
Because first you get your eye gouged after, you know, you stepped up. And then the guy treats you like you didn't matter in the first place. I'd be pissed off about that, too, if I were Bilal Muhammad. And it's just like, I don't know how you then, how you do move Leon Edwards forward off of this. Because, well, I think it's totally true that there are a whole lot of other people who are at or near the top of the welterweight division who didn't want to take that fight with him. I don't know if they'd want to take it anymore now. You know, it's not like it's it's not like that situation has significantly changed for them. It's not like there's a whole lot more shine to a Leon Edwards fight now as a result of him poking Bilal Muhammad in the eye. I don't think you can really put him in a, a title fight and expect it to do anything. And it doesn't really make sense to put him in a title fight after that. To me, it seems like a rematch you might not want might not be your ideal scenario if you're Leon Edwards, but it seems to be the thing that would make the most sense. And like now you might like Bilal Muhammad's pissed at you. You said all this stuff about him afterwards. Fans might be a little bit more emotionally invested in that fight when before they saw it as, well, this just keeps the card together. Now they have a reason to care about it. It it seems to me like a rematch is the the most reasonable thing to do here. Yeah. I mean, again, if you're Leon Edwards, though, it probably appears to you like all you're doing is giving Bilal Muhammad more time to get ready. Right. Uh, But, I mean, you're the one poked him in the eye. You know, like if if you're unhappy with that situation, you kind of got yourself to blame. That's true. I mean, this was as, as unintentional as it gets. Like, clearly, he didn't mean to do that. Like, he's he's trying to set up the uh, the body kick, and he ends up, you know, hitting hitting Bilal Muhammad in the eye with his with his thumb or fingers, and then kind of dragging down on it as as you swing the arms around to get momentum to to kick the body. But like, still pretty ugly, man. Pretty, yeah, pretty bad. All right, let's do. Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then uh, we'll move on to round number two, Ben. Uh, this is going to be breaking news for you as well, but also breaking news to the listeners of the Co-Main Event Podcast. Uh, we're huge in Guam now. Did you yeah. know this? Mm-hmm. We got, got uh, some we Instagram little, messages about it. We we got some. Uh, we got a lot of positive feedback from our discussion of the Guam flag from mm-hmm. last week's episode of the Proper. I believe Apparently, I described it as tranquil as shit. Yes, and uh, our discussion of the Guam flag got picked up by some manner of radio or television broadcast, which was put on the air all across Guam. Wait, hold on. Now, <laughs> they put that on the air? They can't put yeah. that on TV? They put it somewhere, because we've been getting all these messages from people saying they heard us uh, talking about Guam. Now we got we got lovely people from Guam sending us detailed histories of the flag. Yeah. How the flag was created. We got people offering to send us... Uh, the, the products of Guam. They want the P.O. box so they can send us a care package okay. from Guam. Uh, I guess, number one, are you fucking kidding me? This is awesome. Mm-hmm. Number two, this is what we've been waiting for. Yeah. This is why we started this show eight years ago for the to the time that you and I could relocate to Guam as heroes. Yeah. <laughs> be welcomed as heroes in Guam is all I've ever wanted in life, frankly. Um, this reminds me, though. This is actually a story about one of the stupidest things I've ever said to another human being. Because I had, in college, I had a friend from Guam who I did jujitsu with and uh, went to college with. And he and I would hang out. And then I remember, like, I, I did not know he was from Guam. And he mentioned it at some point. He's like, oh, well, I, I grew up in Guam and, and just moved here to go to college here and everything. And I was like, oh, I didn't know you were from Guam. Your English is excellent. And he was like, oh. we, we speak English in Guam. And yeah. I was like... All right, I will show myself out. It has been nice being your friend. I don't think I can uh, show my face around you anymore, though. But, uh, yeah, I got Instagram messages from people, and they were like, the picture, the tranquil-as-shit picture 
on the Guam flag comes from a real thing. It's not just like a, I, I assumed that it was just like a sort of a out of somebody's head representation, but it's like a real thing. They just sent me the pictures of it and everything. And I was like, all right, how, how about this? We're actually learning things. Yeah. Tr- tropical par- There's a tropical paradise ready to open a, welcome us with open arms. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. We've been waiting for this our entire lives. Next stop, Guam. Yeah. Co-main event podcast about to become a big, a uh, lot more John Tuck and Frank Camacho uh, content <laughs> here on the Co-main event podcast. Um, okay. My, are you fucking kidding me this week? Chad, you know, Michael Bisping has his own Hans Camp story. Oh, God. <laughs> this thing just won't die. Dominic Cruz brings up the Hans Camp thing. We all have to learn who Hans Camp is. And then Bisping, I believe, on uh, his podcast, tells a story um, about his own interactions with Hans Camp. <laughs> you know it's going to be a good Bisping story because it starts out with him saying, all right, fuck it. I'm going to talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, Michael Bisping uh acknowledging a, a reservation about what he's about to say, that's when you know it's on. Yeah, he's been holding back all this time. Anyway, he says, I'm this is from a bloody elbow story. I'm driving out of Vegas one night after commentating, and he calls me up and he's going, Mike, we're friends. We're friends, aren't we? And I say, No, we're not, okay? I've known you for a long time, but we never hung out. We're business associates, and that's okay. You know what I mean? Stop dangling this friend card. We're not friends. We're business associations. That's it. That's all we need to be. We don't get together. Our families don't hang out. Shortly after that, I wasn't with a certain company anymore. All of a sudden, I'm fucking broke, okay? Thank you, Hans. <laughs> wow. Are you fucking kidding me? This guy, I mean, I I never heard of him before. Dominic Cruz opens the floodgates, though, and starts talking about him. And now, now if you're Hans Molenkamp, you might have yourself a problem. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me, man. I'm feeling a little bit left out that we're like the only people on the planet that, that Hans Molenkamp's not trying to be friends with. <laughs> I mean, I don't, if you're a energy drink company executive, do you see that as like a supposed perk of the job is that I get to be friends with all these MMA fighters? I don't I know, mean, man. I guess. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's one thing. It's nice if you can get sponsored by an energy drink and all that. It's not like we're sponsored by fucking Guam or anything. It's way better. <laughs> way better. All right, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, this inconclusive non-result result in Saturday night's main event leaves us with a bit of a problem in the welterweight division. And the problem is, what the hell are we supposed to do now? You got your champ, Kamaru Usman. He had him making noise about like, he wants to rematch Jorge Masvidal, apparently because he thinks that that's the only fight that is going to sell anything. Uh, seems like maybe we might go ahead and end up doing that just because, you know, when has the UFC ever turned down an opportunity to make some money? But then, if you look at, you go and you look at the UFC rankings, you got Colby Covington still sitting in the one spot. You got Gilbert Burns sitting in the two spot. Usman's got wins over both those guys. You got Leon Edwards, who he also has a win over, but also seems like he's kind of stuck now. And then you got Jorge Masvidal at four. And then, rounding out the top five, the wonder man himself, Stephen Thompson, who everybody just seems like they would rather ignore. What the hell going to happen? 
That's a great question. The Wonder Man's not making it easy to ignore him at the moment. He's going to be out here on the socials being like, oh, we got to do... Uh, we got to do Leon Edwards versus Bilal Muhammad again. Great. That that opens the door for me. <laughs> like Stephen Thompson is out here all but drawn up his own contract on uh, on Twitter to, to get the, the title defense against Kamar Usman. Uh, it's kind of a mess at 170, owing largely to the fact that Kamar Usman has already beaten almost everyone on the list for the welterweight rankings. And maybe one of the issues here is that you have a fairly stagnant list. Uh, and you have very few of these contenders actually fighting each other. Like they've all been fighting Kamar Usman, unfortunately, and he's already defeated them all. But uh, I don't know, man. Like if you're gonna go ahead and have a, a a welterweight rankings that still has Colby Covington as your number one contender, and Gilbert Burns number two, and Jorge Masvidal number four, you're not leaving us a ton of real fresh options there. Yeah. So maybe it's maybe it's like a function of the rankings. But uh, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, it's not a great situation at 170 pounds right now where you have a pretty dominant champion who, if all things were fair, should be a much bigger star in the landscape of mixed martial arts. And there's just not a ton of great options for Usman up next. And I guess if he wants to fight Masvidal again, and if Masvidal is amenable to that as well, I'm just going to throw my hands up because what else are you going to do? Yeah, but I mean, I guess so. But it also just feels so disinteresting to me because I feel like it's just going to go the same way it went. You know, I, I, I don't have much reason to believe that it, we'll see a significantly different fight. It also feels like even the, like I, I think about the lead up to such a fight, them yelling at each other, stuff like that. And I just, I just want to heave a big sigh. Yeah. Cause it just seems like almost like predetermined. Like we, we know exactly what everybody's going to do there. And we're just going to go through the motions of doing it. And I don't, it, it seems like what Kamaru Usman is looking for is like, hey, he's really good, but can't necessarily, like, he doesn't have that big name yet. He's not really selling a big fight on his own. He needs somebody to help him with that aspect of it. And yet, I don't know, is Masvidal still that guy? It seems like Masvidal had a moment as that guy, but that, that seems to have cooled significantly, hasn't it? Yeah, the rise and fall of Jorge Masvidal has really been something to behold. He has seemingly done everything he can to go from irrelevance to relevance and then back to irrelevance at, at a record pace. Uh, not that he's not still one of the top fighters in that division, because he certainly is. At the same time, like if you are going to put those two back together in another fight, like Masvidal came into their original meeting um, at UFC 251 on, on pretty short notice. So maybe if you actually get the guy a full training camp, you can make the case, you know, maybe he can he can cause some physical problems for Kamaru Usman. It's just that we haven't really seen anybody uh, cause Kamaru Usman all that many problems as of late in the UFC. Probably the the most competitive fight we've seen him in in recent memory is probably Colby Covington. And yeah. I think I speak for us for everyone when I say heavy sigh. No one <laughs> wants to see that shit again. So uh, so I don't know what you do. Although, if I may speak regionally for okay. a moment, everyone listening to this show knows that uh, the Co-Main Event Podcast eminent, emanates uh, from the heart of the Rocky Mountains out here in Missoula, Montana. One true time zone. What? Uh, let's put in the good word for our guy here. Michael Chiesa, who's sitting down there at number six, makes his home about three hours to the west over in Spokane. You know he's going to 
do his best to sell this thing. He's an engaging personality. He's on a nice little win streak. And uh, dare I say, kind of an interesting stylistic matchup for uh, for Kamara Usman. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The, the guy I wonder about, you mentioned Colby Covington. What does he see as his path at this point? Because it seems like almost every idea that somebody suggests to Colby Covington, oh, you could fight this guy, you could fight that, and he doesn't seem to like any of them. Like, yeah. does he think that he's just going to sit around and just wait for the the phone to ring and somebody to say title shot on the other end? Because I don't know if that's happened, man. Yeah, I mean, he's he's another one of these guys that uh, that seems hell bent on kind of taking himself out of the conversation. He had the victory over Tyron Woodley in September, and, and since then we we haven't heard a ton from him that hasn't been, uh, you know either to call someone Camaro fake newsman or say that he doesn't want to fight Leon Edwards or, or whatever. But uh, yeah, he's, he's, it doesn't seem like anybody's doing themselves any favors Mm -hmm. in this division. And it doesn't feel like the rankings are doing us any favors either. And it just seems like a, uh, like a tough situation at welterweight all the way around. Like you'd think Colby Covington should probably jump up there and fight one of these other top contenders. You know, somebody like Michael Chiesa, if you could make, make that thing happen would probably be a fight that, might make sense for both of those guys. Uh, and and we got I guess we run Leon Edwards versus Bilal Muhammad back, and we try to get Kamzat Shemaev healthy, and and you, uh, maybe you do this Masvidal thing in the in the interim. But I guess an additional question is then where does that leave the Wonder Man? Yeah. Because he's out here trying to, he's out here trying to be his own best advocate. If you can't advocate for yourself, no one else will. He's one of the few guys on this list that Kamar Usman hasn't fought. And yet, as you said, there just doesn't seem to be a ton of popular interest in that fight. And yet, once you start naming off names of people who are relevant in the welterweight division right now, you realize there is a ton of talent there. It seems like there's a lot of fun fights you could make. And maybe that's one of the things that is a little more even frustrating to me about the idea, look, we're just going to do Usman versus Masvidal again. And our only reasoning is that well, we think it would make more money, and we would like we would like that money, please. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the era that we are in in yeah. this sport. Got to keep running them back until the right guy wins. <laughs> in any case, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, I have to admit, it's difficult for me to get excited about a middleweight matchup between Derek Brunson and Kevin Holland this Saturday night, when you will recall a couple months ago, when the UFC itself was running down its upcoming matchups, its upcoming attractions that we needed to have on our calendars, and they just skipped over this one, man. And in some ways, maybe that's understandable since you're heading into UFC 260, the uh, the rematch between Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou on the other side of this thing. But uh, Derek Brunson was not having it on the internet that 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 night, and he came out to remind us all, "Oh, hey, they they thought so poorly of my upcoming matchup, they didn't even mention it on the broadcast." So that's where we are here uh, with Kevin Holland and Derek Brunson, the fight the UFC didn't even didn't even mention as we were cruising along toward the heavyweight title rematch, but. I mean, you got Kevin Holland in this thing, man. 
the young up and comer out there riding his five fight win streak, 28 years old coming in uh, fresh off that defeat of Jacare Souza, where he just knocked him silly at UFC 256 in December and is, is one of these guys that uh, uh, with a whopping five wins in 2020 really kind of made pandemic MMA his own playground. Yeah. Yeah. Um, When you think about Derek Brunson, though, like he his last fight was that Edmund Shabazian one, right, where it seemed like maybe the right guy didn't win in in the way the UFC was thinking that one might go. And uh, like a lot of hype being poured into Edmund Shabazian headed into that. And he looked good early on. And then Derek Brunson took over uh, TKO'd him in the third round. Are we just doing the same thing to Derek Brunson here? You think that, the, that yeah. we're, we're just repeating and being like, okay, you got through that one. Let's see if you will cooperate and be the stepping stone this time for Kevin Holland. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Derek Brunson got his own three fight win streak going here. Not, not that we should overlook that. Nothing to sneeze at. Am I crazy to think that more and more it feels like we're seeing these kinds of matchups be more commonplace? I mean, I, obviously I, I don't have the data to support that, but it just seems like every time we turn around, there's one of these fights where the old lion is being set up against the young gun. And like, it's like, we're trying to get a new, this new breed of, of MMA fighters, this new generation of UFC potential stars, uh, some shine off, off people that we know people that we've seen before. And maybe that's a good idea. It's like one of the most tried and true matchmaking philosophies in the history of combat sports. So I guess you can't sneeze at it. And we just spent an entire round talking about how, uh, welterweight is entirely stagnant right now because the damn champ has already beat everybody. So maybe this is a good idea, but it just seems like there are certain certain fighters now that are slotted into this role where the UFC wants to use whatever is left of of their athletic prime to to get these younger guys over. And Derek Brunson appears to be one of those guys now with back to back appearances against Shabazian and and Kevin Holland. So and and like I can't imagine that's a super compli- or a super comfortable place to be. If you are the slightly older man here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, honestly, you can mess around and uh, get yourself in trouble thinking of Derek Brunson that way, because that dude is a good fighter. And uh, when when he's on, he can be a dangerous guy. Although one of the things I liked about this one was like Kevin Holland on this win streak. He didn't necessarily go into like safe mode trying to capitalize and be like, okay, let me try to look about what's the the smartest next move I can make. What's the like really plot in his course. He was just kind of like Derek Brunson's on Twitter being like, I'd fight that guy. And Kevin Holland's like, okay, let's do that. And I, you know, kind of refreshing with everything else we're used to. Kevin, Kevin Holland is, is like, there's not a lot to dislike about the guy. He seems to uh, really be putting his best foot forward at every turn. He's the one guy that Dana White mentioned, wasn't he? Yes, when, he the guy that when Stephen A. Smith was pocket? like, I'm going to give you an opportunity to promote somebody. He explicitly said, promote somebody who is not Conor McGregor. And Dana White was like, uh, you know, Kevin Holland. And yeah. gave him a little bit of push and then returned to Conor McGregor talk. I will say, though, did you hear Kevin Holland on the Joe Rogan podcast talk with his thoughts on COVID? I saw the reports about it, and that was as far into the mouth of the cave as I was willing to go. <laughs> Basically, him saying, like, when hearing about the stuff that Kamzat Chemayev is going through, and he was like, you know, don't say that you're about this life, you know, if you're not. Like, I, I had it, and I'm, I'm just built different, so didn't didn't bother. And, like, Joe Rogan had to be the guy to kind of talk him down. And I believe the, the quote that <laughs> was really the, the best part of the whole interaction was Joe Rogan saying, don't you think it's just like a disease, though? 
Which, yes, it is. That is a factual, like, it's not even up to him to think about whether it's a disease or not. It is. It's a virus. Yeah. Two signs that you know you're in trouble. Number one, if Michael Bisping uh, concedes that he wasn't going to tell this story, but now he is. <laughs> That's sign number one. Sign number two is if Joe Rogan is the voice of reason in the room. Yeah. At that point, you want to look around. You want to take a long look around at the people you're surrounding yourself with. Joe Rogan's trying to reel you back in. You, yeah. you, you might want to reconsider. Joe Rogan is the one trying to bring you back to reality. Uh, well, hey, man, I've long said sport-wide gag order is what what's is what we need here. Let's just keep all these these fighters off the airwaves so that we can go on uh, supporting their athletic endeavors without having to know their uh, their thoughts on epidemiology. Yeah, not a bad idea. I, I know in your in your opinion we're burying the lead here. I know that you are sitting over there gritting your teeth trying to get through the Derek Brunson, Kevin Holland talk so that we can get to the return of the best fisherman in MMA. Another guy who should stay off the airwaves in Gregor Gillespie. You know, um, I haven't seen, I haven't seen a whole lot of fishing content in a long time from Gregor Gillespie. I don't know. I'm a little worried. We haven't about seen guy, anything. Frankly. We haven't seen anything at all from Gregor Gillespie uh, since he got melted by Kevin Lee back at UFC 244. Uh, November of 2019, which is frankly a different world yeah. than what we're dealing with now. Uh, so Gregor Gillespie going to roll in. He's got Brad Riddell this weekend, lightweight fight. And, uh, you know, a guy at one time we had really, really high hopes for at 155 pounds and Gregor Gillespie going to try to get back on the winning the winning side of things here this weekend. Hold on. Are you telling me that you've just written off Gregor Gillespie? He loses one fight. He gets, he gets caught with a good head kick by a good fighter. And now... You're just saying, oh, remember back when we thought Gregor Gillespie might be good. Is that what you're doing? Well, I'm saying that the last time we saw him, it seemed like we were living in a completely different reality. Well, true. Than we are in now. And that that did go terribly for him. And it would be nice to see him get a victory here so that he could rekindle some of those high hopes. Yeah. Yeah. No, as, I mean. As as I know that you are, uh, you're on board with the idea, winning is better than losing. Yep. It would be mm -hmm. good for him to get a win here rather than lose. And I think he should win this one. I mean, the, he always, it's a question with the time off and you never know how much that affects different people and, you know, just what he's been up to since then. But this is the kind of fight that if you're, if you're Gregor Gillespie and you're going to get back on the map and tell everybody like, okay, anybody can lose a fight. Anybody can get kicked in the damn head. Um, but I'm back and I'm, I'm back on track. You got to win this one. Yeah. This would be a good one to win and not lose. Mm -hmm. There we go. All right, let's do just saying stuff, uh, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Jed, I don't know if you saw uh, new comments. George St. Pierre talking about being back at, you know, getting back on that actor life and everything. I am reading a story on MMA fighting about it. Seems like he's out there, you know, promoting uh, a new movie role and all that kind of stuff. So he pokes his head up and agrees to do an interview. The part that stands out to me, though, is him talking about how much he hated fighting. Quote from George St. Pierre. I guess some guys are really happy to be there, but I never really like to fight, to tell you the truth. I like to win. I was just, I guess, blessed with good talent, and I was able to exploit it, and I met incredible mentors throughout my life. But before a fight, if I could click my fingers like this and make it in a way that I was after the fight, I would do it every single time. I don't like the fighting. I hate it. It's unbearable. Jen, I'm just saying that I read this quote, and I am... Immediately reminded of one of the great scenes in Deadwood, where, as we watched through the entire series for our Road Agents podcast, you'll remember Alice Waringen sitting down with George Hurst 
uh, to meet him for the first time. And George was saying that mining, extracting the color from the earth was all he really cared about. To which Al replied, I fucking hope so. I'd hate to think you're this good at something that's only a fucking hobby. So I guess I'm just saying, maybe, maybe kind of depresses everybody to think about how George St. Pierre was that fucking good at something he didn't like. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. Just saying. Wow. Uh, GSP getting ready. I believe he's going to reprise his role as, as Bartrock the Leaper in uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which will be a, an upcoming series on Disney Plus, one of well, these Marvel series that it, are about to be the only thing yeah, on television. That's, it's got to be a, a Marvel Universe or Star Wars thing because those are the only two ongoing like film or TV franchises, it seems. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, what's going to pay dividends for him as he gets into this Disney Plus career? Not one tweet. <laughs> I never send not one tweet. Not, not one very tweet. online, and that yeah, that's that, right. That is a major asset, I'm sure. It's going to be great for GSP. Well, Ben, you know that I generally like Michael Bisping. Oh, okay, we've here we go. Li- we've t- we've talked a lot about on the show already. You know that I generally like Daniel Cormier, mm-hmm. one of my favorite fighters of all time. And I frankly, I generally like both their commentary. But this week, I guess I'm just saying, when you put Daniel Cormier and Michael Bisping together on the same broadcast team, it starts to feel like they are the two best friends who shouldn't be allowed to sit together during the class field trip. <laughs> like okay. if you're planning a serious event, you got a funeral or a, like a wedding reception, maybe don't put Bisping and Cormier at the same table mm-hmm. because shit's just going to get too wacky, yeah. man. You know what I mean? Like you got a serious event going on. You should, you should split those guys up. Their talents are better in small doses and perhaps with other people. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, just saying. Wow. In any case, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Don't forget to check us out all week long over at patreon.com slash co-main event. We got the live chat on Wednesday. We got the power hour on Friday. And for the high dollar patrons, this is going to be a good one. Thursday, co-main event podcast, Patreon movie club. It's monster movie month. We're going to be watching Predator. Yeah. Now, see, I saw some some discontent among the patrons uh, about whether this was even, whether this counts as a monster movie or is just an alien movie. I would point out that we watched The Thing, and that was both a monster and an alien. I think you only got to watch the first scene of The Thing to see the big ass flying saucer crash in the Antarctic to know that the thing is also an alien. And I think we, I think predator starts very much the same way. I think we see a spaceship (laughs) right off the bat in predator. I'll suggest this to you though, since we were going back and forth between predator and alien, and they both are doing very similar things. Group of isolated individuals has to deal with an alien monster. Since they're both such well-known movies. And since I feel pretty confident that both you and I and our entire listening audience for, has probably seen both these films already. Maybe when we talk about Predator, we allow ourselves to consider both. Okay. We allow it, maybe do a little compare and contrast. Since yeah, a meditation on both films. They're, they're two of the best monsters to come out of films, uh, you know, in the last few decades and doing very similar things as films. Okay. It's on. All right. Alien versus Predator, you might even say. There you go. Get it now. Don't fuck up and ac- accidentally watch Alien versus Predator. 
Yeah, watch don't Alien and Predator, but mm-hmm. don't watch Alien versus Predator. I mean, go ahead and watch it if you want to, but uh, temper your expectations. I would yeah. say, yeah. Thanks for listening this week. We'll be back with the proper on Monday, looking ahead to UFC 260 with Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou. That's going to be a big one. That's going to be one we're all excited for. So can't wait to record that show. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Chad, we didn't get a chance to discuss that this upcoming fight night card has a fighter with, I'm going to say, maybe one of the greatest names of all time. Women's strawweight fight featuring Montsat Ruiz versus Cheyenne Bies, the warrior princess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>